The old joke goes, why does your family push your buttons? Because they are the ones who installed them. Some of us are busy right now in the installation business ourselves. So after two decades of preaching on Mother's Day, one thing has become abundantly clear to me. There is no such thing as a monolithic Mother's Day. It's actually a harmful lie to believe that there is. I could probably come up with a months long message series just based on the different feelings that you have in the room today. For some of us, Mother's Day is a joyful day. Some of us, Mother's Day is a sad day, a griefful day. For some people, it's an awful day. For some people, it is just so downright complex that they're not even sure what to feel. And indeed, for many people I know who are mothers or have been mothers, sometimes at the heart of this day, there's just a really deep ambivalence. A really wide-hearted experience of a whole bunch of different emotions that, if we believe in a monolithic Mother's Day, we think that one has to cancel the other out. And that only one emotion or one feeling should win or come to the fore. That's where the harm comes in. To have to believe that we have to be one thing, or our hearts, our experience, our lives only contain one thing, or should contain one thing. So I am not going to ask for a show of hands right here, right now, for all of you who uh, grew up in happy families. (laughs) Because I'm also not going to ask for a show of hands for those of you who grew up in unhappy families. But I am going to ask for a show of hands for all of us who grew up in imperfect families. Those of you who did not raise your hands, I want to talk about what's your secret afterward. <laughs> I'm not sure there were any unraised hands. That's who I want to preach to today. I want to preach to and with us who grew up in and with and are a part of imperfect families, messy families, complex families. Today's story with soul, which is this ongoing series that Reverend Lee and I are offering throughout this springtime about the spiritual wisdom that we find within kids' literature. This story where the wind stops is about a particular relationship within a family. Between a mother and a son. And it starts and really continues the whole way through as a series of inquiries. Deceptively simple. Where the son asks mom, where does the wind go when it stops? What happens to the day when it ends? Where does the sun go when it sets? What happens to all these things that I know really clearly, and then somehow they end? And the mom's response all throughout is genius. The wind doesn't end. It just goes elsewhere to do other work and to become something else. I think contained within this answer is not just great insight and truth, 
but in fact the best legacy that I have seen mindful, loving parents hand off to their kids, which is a growth mindset. We don't know exactly what we do does. We don't know exactly that what is happening ends. And so the best way we can meet this uncertain life in which hopefully we're learning not to seek our source for any more definitives, but in fact to open with curiosity to maybe this deepest thing at the heart of reality, this deepest truth, which is that nothing ends. They change, but things don't end. That's one of the reasons I want to talk about imperfect families today. Because on this day when family is a focus and moms in particular take center stage, it is harmful to focus on what is ideal and not real. Because that ends up getting in the way of life. Us making real, honest, heartfelt connection with the truth of our lives just as we are. This is why that quest, that search for final answers is not something as Unitarian Universalists that we doubt in an intellectual way. There was a time in which I would have thought that. But actually now I see that in a completely different light, that the refusal to come to final answers is in fact the openness to the unending nature of things. And there is no source of hope greater than that that I know. You know, we're not the only ones who say this. Not by a long shot. Uh, what is it? The book of Ecclesiastes has this wonderful phrase, the generations come and go, but the earth remains. Generations come and go, but the earth remains change and some kind of underlying constancy. The wonderful Zen koan, which you've never heard me or other people say before. Don't think about it. Don't try and solve it. Just let it change you. This question, what was the face that you had before your parents were born? <laughs> what was the face any of us had before our parents were born? I mean, the fact that there's a face here right now means it must have been some part of something at some point in the past, but it didn't look exactly like this or like that or like those or like yours. What was your face before your parents were born? See, this is what koans do. I haven't studied a lot of koans, but I've worked with them a little bit in my spiritual life. And what koans do is they help us get to the heart of reality, which is about relationship. That there is some kind of constancy flowing throughout our lives, and yet change and impermanence is the opposite of repetition. And that if we look individually, each of us, deeply into the heart of reality, what I've seen over and over again is that we find here a deep, unabridgeable connection that, for me, relationship is the best name I know to describe it. In it, we find both the mystery of our identity and also the meaning of our identity. Uh, some of you might have read, maybe recently or years ago, or you know of the book, uh, uh, James Agee's A Death in the Family, which is exactly what it describes, a death in the family, a death in the family that kind of shakes and breaks everything open within this particular family. And there is an opening, an opening narrative to a death in the family that I have always loved. And I'm not going to try and reproduce it here because I will do injustice to the beauty of its writing. 
but in it a child in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1915 talks about my people. My people are large and they love me. It goes on and on for about a couple pages. My people. And yet, and yet, they will not tell me who I am. They will not tell me who I am. Both connection and mystery. As the song says, a source beyond, as we also say here at Wellsprings, single definition. This quest for identity, for connection, for ancestry. It's kind of like a, it's actually like a big, big business right now. Maybe some of you have actually done this. Do you know this? You know uh, 23andMe, a genetic test, or Ancestry.com? And I actually know some people who actually have really profoundly benefited from doing 23andMe. We'll leave aside the ethical questions about now there's all this information about our genetic selves out there for someone to do something with at some point. But... But I'd known people who did not know at all their family of origin or their biological family of origin or their stories were not shared with them. I've known people who did the 23andMe test and actually found out for maybe the first time in their lives where they came from and kind of who their people are or their ancestry. And it can be a very powerful thing. We can also see in some beautiful and challenging ways, and I mean challenging in the best way. Maybe you've seen this. I've actually seen it just in the past week on Facebook that, you know, sometimes searching into our origins or what we think are our origins totally upends what we think our origins are. Maybe you've seen this thing. It's like on Maury Povich or one of those kinds of shows I don't watch, but sometimes I do. (laughs) We're like this hateful avowed white supremacist, you know, all about the purity of Aryan nonsense and European ancestry, finds out he's like 46% African (laughs) in his genetic makeup. As much as we might look back to hope for answers, hopefully what we also get is just more mystery, just more of an invitation to the fact that our lives, even as heritage might provide clues, our lives are still not fixed and actually not in need of fixing, in need of inquiry, compassionately. But we're not broken machines. In this search for origins, maybe it's the age I'm getting to, middle age-ish, you know, not ish, middle age. (laughs) I've noticed something, an interaction between my wife and myself which often happens, maybe I've been noticing recently because baseball is back, and uh, I'm watching a lot of games, and like, even though my team is playing well, uh, sorry, Phillies fans, um, <laughs> I mutter. It's a thing that I do. I mutter when it's not going well. I mutter to myself, and sometimes I mutter certain words, words that I don't use in this pulpit. Who am I kidding? There's words I've used in this pulpit before, but maybe not such a stream of them. I don't yell. I don't get angry, but I mutter. And my wife, who indulges me in a lot of ways, um, will turn to me with this arched eyebrow thing that she does. And she say, that's so Sandy. That's my dad. (laughs) That is so Sandy. Yes. And I've actually, you know, grown non-resistant to this truth. um, And actually use that as a moment of compassion inquiry. 
an inventory moment, kind of like that Zen koan. Whose muttering is this? (laughs) Is it really mine? What story am I living out? What story am I repeating? So much of mature and maturing adult, especially parental identity, comes not in answering the question, are we the same or are we different? But are we living in unconscious ways or are we living in conscious ways? Not questing for the uniqueness of who we are, but the relatedness of who we are. And we only truly ever know the depth of our relationship through becoming conscious. This aware adulthood, this question, what legacy have I been given? What legacy do I have to give? Whether we're parents or not is so important. And actually, I think it's, it's one of the things that um, uh, Carl Jung, wonderful depth psychologist, talks about. He says that one of the most painful legacies that a parent can give their child is their own unlived life. One of those painful legacies a parent can give their child is their own unlived life. I mean, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other ways in which our families can mess us up. But that is an important way. It's also a profound way that those of us, those of you who are parents, can offer a gift. Not by molding your kids, but by showing and teaching through your example what it is to truly live your life. This is that openness that moves beyond repetition. As Chris already talked about, she just took about three minutes out of my message today. That's wonderful. I love making it more brief. Julia Ward Howe, that is a growth mindset. Her from this tradition. and says we don't need to keep repeating the same old, same old into this point. We can be different. This is the heart of our tradition. The burning bush is blazing everywhere. As we say here at Wellsprings, it does not need to be the same. And yet, how many of us, large scale, small scale, continue to live out someone else's story unconsciously? One of my favorite stories, and I don't think I've told it on Mother's Day for, I may have told it once here, it's from Jay McInerney. Any of you remember that name, Jay McInerney? Bright Lights, Big City? Kind of a, a what would they call him, what the French call him? An enfant terrible of literary renown, became very famous and very rich in his 20s when he wrote this story that he kind of lived of New York in the 1980s of a lot of cocaine and a lot of partying and a lot of problems and too much money and too much privilege and too much. So that was part of his story. And it became a movie with Michael J. Fox. The movie isn't any good, but the book is really good. (laughs) And then... Nothing he wrote really since that point <laughs> has been nearly as well received. But he made an awful lot of money, and he did an awful lot of self-destructive things with that money. And so licking his wounds a number of years ago after he had become famous, he decided to go back home for a bit because his mother was dying. And he wanted to be with her, but also it was kind of one of those places I get the sense as he tells the story that no one else would take him in. <laughs> And so he went home. And Jay McInerney's mother was everything that he was not, at least by appearance. Whereas she was devout, he was dissolute. Whereas she was respectable, 
he was disreputable. And he defined his relationship with his mother only by their differences. Until one night, very close to the end of her life, when he was engaging that most sacred practice, some of you know this, feeding ice chips to the dying or to the sick, profoundly sacred practice. It's like communion. It is communion. His mother awoke and said she had something she wanted to share with him. Turns out that Jay McInerney's mother, upright Methodist woman, had had decades before a torrid, ongoing affair that almost destroyed their family. It was with a friend of the family, someone that her husband knew, And it almost brought their family to a close. Jay McInerney's mom had never told anyone about this decades-long secret until sitting with her son a few days before her life would come to an end. What Jay McInerney felt in that moment was that his mom wasn't up here, out there anymore, distant from her and her unapproachable goodness, but that she was flawed and imperfect and held painful secrets, just like he did. You can get a sense when he tells this story of how grateful he was to receive that gift and in a way to understand how real his mom was not as an object of virtue, but as a living, breathing human being. You get a sense also that this was part of his own healing from the ways in which his own life had gone wrong. And it reminds me of the great words from the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr who is most associated with having written, although it's not really sure that he did, but it's ascribed to him, the serenity prayer, when he says that love is the final form of forgiveness. I absolutely agree with that. Love is the final form of forgiveness, creating connections, offering relationship where there did not seem to be any, because forgiveness does not obliterate any person's painful past. But forgiveness can keep a painful past from obliterating us, offering us the opportunity to continue to grow and to be open. And of course, none of us can compel ourselves or others, nor should we, for forgiveness or for love. And so maybe today is one of those days in which you do not feel a lot of love for your family, for the challenges of where and who you grew up with. There is no telling. There's only allowing. And maybe you feel tremendous love this day for the people who raised you and for the people you also may be raising. And so maybe if not for family today, and for yourself to learn to allow and accept the full complexity of your life, all of our imperfect parts. In a small group that Reverend Lee and I are leading right now, we're devoting ourselves to heart practices and particularly compassion practices. And one of the guides of one of the teachers we've been working with talks about, not in a literal sense, but... Imagining that we are breathing in the grit 
of our own suffering and other people's suffering. I love that, breathing in the grit. How often we aspire to be clean when in fact the only cleanliness there really is, I think, first arises from being willing to recognize that sometimes life is really dirty and really messy. Breathing in the grit. For me, that reminds me of who we actually are, who we really are, like in the Genesis myth, which I don't take literally, but I think is absolutely true. The grit, the clay, the dirt, the earth creature, not Adam, it wasn't a proper name, the earth creature, as it says in the scriptures, that somehow became alive because of that divine breath, that spiritus breathed into it. And the truth is, that's not long ago and far away. Just as Chris said of why we light this chalice, it's not long ago and far away. It's happening still right now, this day. And in this way, we might think of our clay not as something formed, but as something soft and without definitive size and features, a face still forming. Growth above all else means holding our identity lightly enough So that when it is time to let go of one form of identity, we are able to move into a new life with grace. All of us do this struggling, flailing, failing. I know I do it over and over again. (laughs) But here's the great thing in our tradition. This growth mindset is who we are at our heart, connected and imperfect. This coming Saturday, as you heard, we're doing a loving-kindness retreat that is an opportunity to cultivate more of these heart practices. And one of them we will do is guided by one who guides us in the ways of walking meditation very simply. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese and Buddhist monk, says, Imagine you are walking as if, as if your feet are kissing the earth. I love that. Sometimes when I do walking meditation, I bring that intention to it, and it gives me a sense that also the earth is kissing my feet, <laughs> this profound sense of connection. And so this day, and, and with a quote that is particularly meaningful for me and maybe for you, Thich Nhat Hanh offers us this. Each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine alone, but a living continuation of my mother and of all my ancestors. These feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. Never alone. What I love about this is we don't even have to like our mother or like our parents or like who we came from (laughs) to recognize that at least they did one thing right. (laughs) You're here today. And I'm here today. And we, as the great teacher from our own tradition said, we are all members of the living family of all souls. And just look around this room, right? Look around the room at these faces Sameness is not part of the human condition. (laughs) Look at the difference in these faces. Look beyond this room. Sameness is not part of the human condition, but belonging is. Because the clay, the breath, 
The universalism from the ground up is here. We already belong. May our sense of belonging build our sense of being loved. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Source beyond single definition that words cannot capture and words should never capture, but is known in the breath, is known in the beating of hearts, is known that in hands that join, and is known in the unabridgable connections. Today, may we wake up to the full mess, the full catastrophe, the full spectrum living, the total drama, the fullness of our lives that somehow are still empty enough to be open to what is not yet. We can't think our way into and out of this kind of identity, but we can breathe our way into and out of it, waking up moment by moment. Today, may we give thanks for all who have cared for us and give thanks to ourselves for all the ways in which we extend our care. That we, all of us, each one of us, all of us together, are all members of the great family of all souls. Amen.